Hello, and welcome back to Wandering the Edge, a podcast about Ukrainian history without a spot of travel. I'm your host, Larissa, and today we'll be talking about feminism, Ukrainian feminism specifically. Um, and because we're still in a war with Russia, there's no travel information for you because, you know, war and stuff. But before we move forward, I'll uh, get into the usual. Um, I may swear in this episode, and if you are listening to Podcast Addict or Apple Podcast, please leave a review or just rate it. You can also find us on a number of streaming sites, including, but not limited to, Spotify, Google Podcast Breaker, and of course, the website wanderingtheedge.net, where you can check out any of the previous episodes and sources. Okay, so I know feminism isn't exactly a super interesting topic, uh, but hear me out. Because Ukrainian feminism is much like uh, our history, wrapped in a historical conundrum that is the distortion of historical evolution due to Soviet and Russian imperialistic fuckery. And so here's a look on how Ukrainian feminist thought remained apart from their Western sisters. So I'll be honest here and say, when I was growing up, I never really considered myself a feminist, mainly because I had very strong female examples in my life, including my mother. And so I was like, well, why call yourself a feminist when you have the same rights as men anyway? Well, then I picked up a book and then I read it and it changed my life. And if you are ever listening to this, Marta Bohachevsky Chomyak. Thank you. Your work, Feminists Despite Themselves, changed my life and my outlook on Ukrainian feminist history. Obviously, that work will be heavily featured in this episode. And if you do have the opportunity to read it, do it. It's amazeballs. I can literally just spend the entire time simply reading this work rather than do any other research of this for this episode, which obviously I didn't. But back to the topic at hand. Now, it's very difficult to talk about a theory, since some aspects of it can be found throughout our history, even in the Cossack era. And with that, I will quote Hannah Chikolenko Keller, a journalist, librarian, women's movement leader from the tw- from 1920. Quote, it is probably in the 15th through the 17th centuries that we must look for the origins of a relative independence of the Ukrainian women in the following epochs. The upper Ukrainian classes as well as the common Cossacks lived a warlike existence defending the frontiers against foreign invasion. Women were often obliged to follow their husbands in their expeditions, even to partake in the battles, fighting at the side of the men for the defense of their country. The Ukrainian women at this time displayed great energy and great strength of character. In her husband's absence, she was accustomed to rely on herself, on her own initiative. She took part in the political life, in the seatings of the diets and public assemblies. She was admitted to law courts. The religious movements of the time have found passionate partisans among Ukrainian women who studied religious doctrines, founded monasteries, schools, hotels, actively collaborated in the spreading of instruction and charity, 
took part in the ecclesiastical communities that played so great a role in the struggle for national independence, end quote. It was from that old Cossack families that the first Ukrainian women writers came from, and they were followed by uh, by women philanthropists. But I'm going to fast forward a bit and look at the relatively late period of the 19th and 20th centuries and note the progression, differences, and difficulties that faced Ukrainian feminist thought. Now, Ukrainian feminism was much the same as Ukraine itself during the 19th century, split between East and West. In the Western regions, feminist ideas were essential to uh, to Ukrainian intellectual life. It was also a link to European cultural processes and political work. It is from here that feminism emerged as an organized women's movement and the mature cultural traditions. However, due to the political situation of Ukrainians, feminism was overshadowed by the cause of national liberation because equal voting rights were goals for the whole community and not just Ukrainian women. In the East, feminism came out of a more traditional gender roles enshrined by those ancient Cossacks. And being Ukrainians, any political or cultural movement was looked down upon simply because of who they were. Both sides had their own important organizations too. The West had their Prozvita and the East had their Hromada societies. They were both important in lifting up the national question and national consciousness on both sides of the border, but also enabled the two halves to communicate with each other. This included the communication of Western and Eastern feminists. For example, Natalia Korbinska, the founder of the Society of Ruthenian Women in what is now ivano Frankivsk in 1884. She was a super-socialist, which is sort of let go of in support of super-feminism. She wanted women to change their own fates through their own effective organization rather than a political movement. It was because of this that Western Ukrainian feminism was more of a self-help movement rather than an emancipation one. Now, in the East, feminism was promulgated by the one and only Olena Pshilka. If you haven't heard of her, you should. She is one of those activists from those old Cossack families. Her brother was none other than Mihailo Drohobanov. She would marry and have several famous children, including the great Lesya Ukrainka, or Larissa uh, Kosach uh, Kvitka. Olena was a writer, translator, ethnographer, uh, folklorist, publicist, journalist, and obviously feminist. Her work was actually forbidden in the East, but was smuggled out into Austro-Hungary, which occupied the western part of Ukraine at that time. On October 1st, 1885, Kobrinska actually wrote to Pshilka, asking for help and coordinating the women's movement on both sides of the border. Pshilka agreed because she had a very high assessment of her western sisters. East and West cooperation began, but it soon hit a wall. Ukrainian society remained sexist in different ways, as Marta bohachevsky chalmyak writes, quote, Eastern European women made fun of women's gatherings while participating in them themselves. The anti-feminist undercurrent among the intellect- intelligentsia was unnoticed because uh, contacts between the two parts of the nation focused on patriotism. The Russian police identified Galicia as the center of the Ukrainian movement. The Austrians also watched both as suspicious foreigners, end quote. But with the end of the 19th century Findisiakla Europe, the same trends were also seen among Ukrainian intellectuals, 
And if you want to know more about this particular topic, read Findicia Claviana, Politics and Culture by Carl Shortske. It is great. Now, in Ukraine, one woman was the voice of this generation, the one and only Lesa Ukrainka, and I've dedicated the next two episodes just to her and her family. Anyway, Ukrainka or Lesa Kosach grew up surrounded by independent women. Her mother, Olena Pshilka, for example, loudly predicted that Russia would never support non-Russian nationalities, and that even very liberal Russians were completely ignorant of Ukrainians. So, yeah, still fucking true. Anyway, Ukrainka was raised in a very independent feminist household and had a certain duality to her feminist ideas. For example, she didn't have children, but felt the second-rate state of women. She did traditionally female things like sew embroidery, take care of her siblings, and she loved jam making, but also wrote poems and plays. When she was at a public meeting to discuss Ukrainian national ideals, she would quietly knit until she was asked to speak. But in her writings, well, that was a strong portrayal of her ideals. For example, her 1910 drama, Boyarenya, or The Noble Woman, set in the 17th century, deals with the Ukrainian woman who moves to Russia and has to confront the weird subordination of Russian women. I will let Solomea Pavlichko describe Ukrainka's writings further from her 2002 work, Feminism, also another revelation in Ukrainian feminist study. Uh, end quote. Two main positions emerge in Ukrainka's views. One is that feminism seems natural and needs no supporting proof. The other, that the position of women is miserable and demands struggle. All the figures in Ukrainka's plays, from Lyubov in the Blue Rose to Odarzyma, Boyarnina, Cassandra, and Mavka, are variations of the theme of women's tragedy. Betrayal in relationships with women, women's solitude, women's patriotism, that in sometimes deeper than men's, and dramatic fem- uh, feminine devotion to truth, end quote. Ukrainka defended the Europeanization of Ukrainian culture and wanted more translations of European classics, as this would help infuse more European values into Ukrainian life. But Ukrainka, along with other Ukrainian intellectuals, viewed feminism as an integral part of the progressive democratic movement, even if it wasn't for the uneducated rural community. For these intellectuals, women's equality was conventional wisdom, even in the late 19th century. Ukrainka even wrote in 1900 of another feminist writer, Olha Kobrianska, right? Kobrianska, that she lost interest in feminism because, quote, the actual concept of women's equality did not need theoretical proof, end quote. And it was this that Ukrainian feminism differed greatly from its Western sisters. Now, much like Pshilka and Kobrianska, Lesia Ukrainka also had her own sort of pen pal in Western Ukraine, Olya Kobolyanska. She was born in 1863 and was a Ukrainian modern, uh, modernist writer and feminist. And much like Ukrainka, she never obtained a systematic education, because, uh, which she regretted throughout her life. But Binska's writings were very clearly were written against the patriarchal model of Ukrainian culture of the time. She would, however, delve deeper into the national question, and her later works questioned how the cultural environment where nationalism constituted the mainstream discourse among Ukrainians. 
Kobylianska and Ukrainka would write to each other often, and Ukrainka even observed that Western Ukrainian men had a very unequal attitude toward women. Quote, Among the Galatians, I sense some strange, difficult relationship toward women. They all either look down at us from on high or else look up uh, to us from below. But for them to look at, a, uh, at us as equals is impossible. End quote. And this was certainly felt by those women of the First World War and afterward. But what Ukrainka and her feminist friends did was reject and replace patriarchal images of women that dominated national literature. As Solomega Pavlichko wrote, quote, They smashed the myth of the eternal passivity and weakness of women and the eternal activity of men, end quote. And as you saw from episode 27, when Ukrainian women were more than willing to join their men along the front lines during the First World War, they did get a lot of pushback from the Ukrainian ruling, uh, ruling class, well, which was men. It was always men. But with the collapse of Ukrainian independence also came the collapse of militant feminism. The national question became far more important now. Because it wasn't just women who were seen as second-class citizens in the post-First World War Ukrainian landscape. It was all Ukrainians. What we see now is the shift from a more literary, theoretical approach to feminism to a more practical one. Some of this was the war itself. Women showed that they could and, and would fight and die for their country. Vita Bobenko, for example, served as a major liaison for the Pluda government in exile but she was betrayed by a Soviet spy, sent back to the Soviet Union, and died at the hands of the secret police. Maria Tarasenko was also, uh, also died for the Ukrainian independence movement, but she served as a courier for the government for over two years and was executed with her whole family on August 27, 1923. After the war, women were far more active in public life. Another aspect of this had to do with the fact that there weren't any writers analyzing the relationship between the sexes, but also because of the position that Ukraine saw itself after the First World War. It, again, was split in two, the East under Soviet occupation while the West under the, under the Second Polish Republic. And it was in the West that one of the most important Ukrainian organizations in the modern period began, the Soyuz Ukrainok, or the Women's Union. The Women's Union was formed from the 1921 Congress of Ukrainian Women, even though the Congress was disbanded by Polish, Polish police mainly due to the national character of the Congress itself. It was because Milena Rudnitska, a teacher, activist, politician, and writer, and one of the founders of the Union, exhorted the women of the Congress to participate in political life through a political organization. At the end of her talk, she said this, quote, Ukrainian women consider the fundamental immutable political ideal of the Ukrainian nation, an independent, sovereign, democratic Ukrainian state with its capital in Kiev. Ukrainian women consider that the only conceivable course to attain that ideal is the de facto liberation of Ukrainian life in all its manifestations. Ukrainian women resolve to play the most active part in, civil, in civic life for this purpose and will support the activities and strivings of our national leadership, end quote. Now, it was this mention of cave that actually led the policemen to disperse the Congress. The union would become one of the largest Ukrainian organizations during the interwar period. It was one, also one of the first Ukrainian organizations to work alongside other Ukrainian women's unions outside of Ukraine in Europe, Canada, and the United States. 
what it did in Western Ukraine was fuse women's clubs, ladies' philanthropic societies, war relief committees, and young socialist women's clubs. While the rank and file were mainly intellectuals and townswomen, the majority of members were peasants. Its work centered on the local branches, the village circles, which would then elect the union's governing board. Representatives of the central or regional offices would often visit the local ones to see how their work was coming along, but would also cooperate with existing branches of the other important Ukrainian interwar organization, Prozvita, or Enlightenment. Prozvita was technically a reading room society, but it also owned its own buildings. And this was important because establishing any new organization in interwar Poland required a special permit, which was not really granted. So with this cooperation, the women's union could use the Prozvita branches without needing to get any permit at all. The other organization that was important to the women's union was the Cooperative Movement, which was unified under the Central Ukrainian Cooperative Union in 1921. It wanted to make Ukrainians in Poland self-reliant, and its slogan was literally, from our own to our own. By eliminating the middlemen, they channeled profits back to Ukrainian peasants and Ukrainian organizations, and the membership of all three was intermixed. Ukrainian culture is fascinating, isn't it? The food, the music, the dance, the food, the clothing, the art. Did I mention the food? and especially the history. It's something that doesn't get the attention it deserves. Something else that doesn't get enough attention in our culture is the history of the Eastern Front of the Second World War, a war fought largely on Ukrainian soil, a war that swallowed up tens of millions of people in many countries, battles that dwarfed D-Day and the Battle of the Bulge, a war that redrew the world's borders, and a war that echoes in Ukraine right now. I'm Scott Bray, author, honorary Ukrainian, and podcaster of Beyond Barbarossa, first English-language podcast in the world that focuses on the Eastern Front of World War II. Every episode, I go deep into the events as they unfolded eight decades ago. Regularly, guests join to share their expert knowledge and reflections on the war. So, if you're interested in learning more about history, won't you join me for this in-depth tour of the biggest part of the war that shaped the world we inhabit today. You can find Beyond Barbarossa on your preferred podcasting platform. And since you're listening to Wandering the Edge, I know you can spell Barbarossa. The reason why the Union was so successful and powerful in the interwar period was because its work was more pragmatic than theoretical, and its justification was patriotic. I will let Mata Bohachevsky-Chomiak explain more. Quote, the union was successful because it proved that purposeful activity of the female half of the population could increase the standard of living for, of, of Ukrainian peasants. In turn, successful contacts with the peasants encouraged the intelligentsia. The Ukrainian intelligentsia in the Polish lands, as well as in other areas of Eastern and Western Europe, was never uh, alienated from the people. And during the, during the interwar years, it threw itself wholeheartedly into community work, end quote. Now, the intelligentsia was also severely under or unemployed during the interwar years. And so this community work actually managed to continue their own vocational work. 
The other reason for its success is purely down to Ukrainian stubbornness. As with the Polonization policies of the state came Ukrainian reaction. So when the Polish nuns began to establish Polish daycare centers in Ukrainian villages, Ukrainian women, nuns and laywomen together, joined forces and set up their own Ukrainian daycare centers. This pragmatism can also be seen through the work of Olena Kiselivska, the editor of Shinocha Lola, or Women's Fate magazine. She treated feminism, and by extension so did her magazine, as a self-help and community help initiative. For example, she argued that only knowledgeable women can help with modern farming, which was a matter of life and death since, you know, food and stuff. She also preached that women had to learn to exercise their political rights, but also stressed the importance of a woman's role in the family. Quote, There are many issues, economic, educational, the care of youth and others, which the woman housekeeper, the woman mother, the woman sister or daughter understands better than the man, end quote. The journal would also include pragmatic instructions like what and when to plant, uh, how to fertilize, what, how, and when to clean, and cooking recipes. It also included basics like how to make a cheaper down jacket rather than buying an expensive fur coat, providing plans for building an insulated box where cereal would finish cooking in its own steam and thereby save firewood, and advocated to get boys accustomed to housekeeping duties. This pragmatism also ran through the union itself, where it ran various corsets for its members. Some of the most popular ones were cooking and sewing, but also included scholarly lectures and literature nights. By 1934, branches were established in almost all of the Ukrainian villages in western Ukraine. In that second decade of the women's union, there was now a shift to include more feminist writings in the new women's newspaper, Zhinka, or Women, which was founded in 1935. This was now more theoretical and tackled issues like expansion of job opportunities, job equality, career training, personal growth, sport, and travel. But those pragmatic features were what made the women's union so attractive. They even organized Peasant Women Days, which included mass demonstrations, marches, concerts, and exercises to try to eradicate laziness, but also included poetry and music so as to grow the modern Ukrainian women who will serve the people and the nation. And so in order to mark the growth of the Women's Union and mark the 50th anniversary of the first public demonstration of Ukrainian women in the city of Stanislavyev, now Ivano-Frankivsk, the Union held a Congress in 1934. This was huge. And to limit the number of women going, the Polish government cancelled customary reduced fare rail tickets that many Ukrainian women were counting on to get to the city. Many Ukrainian women had to turn back, but others organized themselves and managed to get there, some even using a, a horse and wagon system. Around 10,000 delegates took part in this four-day event, which included theme days. The first was Our Past and Our Tasks. The second was All About Peasant Women. The third was Let's Create Our Own Native Culture. And the last was a discussion about the economy. Now, the other weird phenomena of the 1930s was the convergence of nationalism with feminism. Young women were now more and more turning to the organization of Ukrainian nationalists 
rather than the women's union. Obviously, this was because of the moderate Ukrainians. This was because the moderate Ukrainians failed attempts to make life better for Ukrainians in Poland. The Ukrainian National Democratic Alliance was a legal Ukrainian political party that elected women to the Polish parliament in 1927, including Rudnitska. These failed attempts at conciliation undermined Ukrainian confidence in the, Ukrainian, uh, in the Polish state. And with the majority of Ukrainian women coming into contact with Polish chauvinism, including Polish women who, for example, in 1927, one of the leading Polish feminists, <clears throat> Lucia Czarewiczowa, wrote that Poles should be wary of the achievements of the so-called Ukrainian women's movement and its threat to the Polish state. So Ukrainian women's turn to radical nationalism wasn't exactly a surprise. Ukrainians were a nation without a government, and so it was impossible for them to renounce war in theory, as it was a means of establishing an independent state. Hannah Chikolenko Keller, for example, argued that, quote, Ukrainian women did not espouse war per se, nor were they planning one. But coming from a dependent and politically divided nationality, they could not reject war completely, end quote. Now, obviously, nationalist organizations glorified a more traditional role of a woman, that of mother and nurturer. But in practice, it was a bit more complicated because it was all about sacrifice and dedication to the nation rather than to their sex. And I'll let Bohachevska Chomyak explain further, quote, For many young Ukrainian women, the politics and policies of the women's union were too pedestrian, too limited, and too confining to justify their joining it. These young women, like the women socialists of the turn of the century, presumed either equality of the senses or of the sexes or natural differences and were not concerned about individual autonomy. Impressionable, raised on Polish and Ukrainian romantic patriotic, uh, patriotic literature, which they read at school and home respectively. These young women readily joined the OUN or participated in its demonstrations and terrorist acts, end quote. The OUN was largely a youth-oriented and youth-created movement, and Ukrainian women went through the same shit as Ukrainian men, polonization of schools, abuse and police harassment, compulsory attendance of Polish patriotic celebrations. This was national discrimination and not a sexual one, because women's equality to them was removed. They could get a high school education, join youth organizations, go camping trips, have ideological discussions alongside their male peers, and help in terrorist acts. The first of these was in 1929, where Maria Kravtsev, Sofia Moisejovich, Maria Konrad, Maria Mudrik, Anna Mritz, and Zenovia Kravtsev were tried and charged with disseminating nationalist leaflets. Most were daughters of prominent union activists. The famous Katarina Zaretska and Daria Knatiewska were involved in the OUN assassination of the Polish Minister of Interior, Bronislaw Pieracki, in Warsaw in June 1934. Rudnitska, by the way, had a really hard time understanding why women joined the OUN. Like, a really hard time. She thought it was due to male intrigue. 
She was openly on opposition with Yo Un and would express it in what I would consider not the best of places. Like at a displaced persons camp after the Second World War, which was filled with either mothers, sisters, relatives, or actual Ukrainian insurgent army female soldiers who were worried about their male kin who were left at home. And she said this, as was recited in an interview with Oksana Kies in 2012 by a member of the audience, quote, Later, Milena Ruditska came to the camp and everyone was a, who was a member of the women's union was expected to show up. I was a bit late and there was no room to sit, so I stood in the doorway. And my son was playing with the other children. And she said, who do we have in the forest today? And I just came to the camp after being transferred by the own, by own orders. And she goes on, they are all bandits, bandetta followers, they are all scum and we should be ashamed of them. And I just came from the forest. When I started to speak, my voice was very loud and started, and I started to say, Ladies, who exactly do we have in the forest? It's our brothers, our husbands, your sisters. Are they bandits? Your son or, or your sons are bandits? Who are we listening to? And so I left, and all the other women left with me. What would you do if she called those boys bandits? They were never bandits. They ruined their health and themselves, all for the love of Ukraine. They left their family and everything, their youth. They were brave boys and girls. Those women left their families and their children to create our, our country, and you call them worthless? How is that possible? End quote. But that is after the Second World War. Prior to it, by 1936, Polish terror against Ukrainians increased, and at the end of that year, the, Ukrainian, uh, the Women's Union became more political. It would have constant contact with the UNDO and this so-called contact committee, which included Ukrainian journalists, signed an agreement to establish a political coalition. And so the Polish state decided this was a dangerous step. And on May 5th, 1938, in a coordinated series of raids which involved 6,000 police officers, they closed the central offices of the Union, arrested all 72 branch heads, and closed 1,250 village circles in Hilichina. Even though it was reinstated in October of 1938, when the beginning of the Second World War occurred the following year, it closed its doors and had to wait until independence to be reinstated because it was too dangerous to the Soviets. But what happened on the other side of the Ukrainian border in Soviet Ukraine? Well, you would think socialist thought would be more than happy to put forward women's equality, but you would be wrong. Early Marxian socialism believed feminism was a concept of the bourgeois, and while Engels did declare that women were representatives of the proletariat in the family household, neither he nor Marx showed much sympathy to organized feminism. To them, it represented, it represented false women's emancipation, and Marx declared that, quote, German women should have begun by driving their men to self-emancipation, end quote. This was because the daughters of those evil bourgeois were a bit of a conundrum for Marx and Engels. Due to the stupidity of the 19th century, in Europe, uh, 19th century European marriage and property laws, some of these daughters would continue women's traditional philanthropic work, but those who couldn't or wouldn't got married, 
had to find themselves work as teachers, postal or sales clerks, administrators or governesses. And they didn't fit into that image of a socialist ideal. But communism, especially Soviet communism, took upon a lot of Russian ideals. One of those was the relationship of women in the family, which for them was an extension of state power. While for Ukrainians, the family was a way to was used to preserve cultural autonomy against the encroachment of the state. The biggest draw for organizations like the Union was because they didn't preach the gospel or some abstract revolution they didn't understand or want to understand. But that's what Russian women's circles did. Now, I'm not saying there weren't hardcore feminists or organizations in Russia. I'm, I'm sure that there were. But they were meant for Russian women and not Ukrainian. Contact between East and Western Ukraine allowed women in the Russian Empire to become more aware of their subordinate position, and they became more active, until the Soviets won. Being a good Soviet citizen was the only thing that mattered in the Soviet Union, and because females technically had the right to vote, this basically silenced female emancipation in Soviet Ukraine. I mean, I say technically, because it's not like anyone had a choice in who they elected anyway. And because of that silence, it was actually the Union who raised Eastern Eastern Ukrainian voices. Like, for example, it organized protests in 1933 against the Holodomor, Stalin's man-made famine against Ukrainians. Obviously, all these female organizations rejected Marxist socialism, apart from those idiots who were active in the Communist Party of Western Ukraine. What struck most people when learning of the work of the women's union was the harmony that existed among the classes. Along the visible signs of differentiation like educational levels, speech, dress, and behavior. Women of the union were democratic, open, and opposed to all authoritarian and totalitarian ideologies. That's probably the reason they were closed down when the Soviets came to Western Ukraine in 1939. Now, the Second World War was obviously fucked up for everyone. In Ukraine, women were either participants or victims, much like the males. A lot of Ukrainian women joined the Red Army or the Ukrainian Insurgent Army and were active in not only the medical field, but combat operations. The complexity of their stories is beyond this episode, but I want to say that chaos and warfare didn't differentiate between sexes. After the Soviet Union won the entirety of Ukraine, the Soviet experiment began in the whole of a country. Mato Bohachemska Chomyak, again, quote. The Soviet reality of a patriarchal society with little understanding of women's needs and a totalitarian regime obsessed with security vitiated the women's rights won in the first flush of the revolutions of 1917-18. Hence, in the popular view Today, feminism is either identified with communism or with frivolous westernism. In both cases, it is discredited. The peculiarities of Soviet gender policy lacking a familiarity with modern sociological discourse on gender and the attraction of the ostensible golden age of uh, domesticity stand in the way of a mass resurgence of of women's activism. The Soviet regime produced a woman who expected that basic social services would be guaranteed by the state. All women's organizations in Ukraine have taken for granted the responsibility of the governments for social welfare, extended maternity leave, childcare, and health benefits. The necessity of political, or at least public, action is raised on occasion, but remains mostly 
uh, rhetorical, end quote. What ended up being the ideal female in the Soviet Union was a symbolic macho woman of the male-dominated society. Women had to be mothers and housewives who were doomed by their men to manual labor and inferiority, but also lost their femininity and acquired profound and unacknowledged psychological issues. Perestroika during the late Soviet Union allowed non-party women's organization to open, and they in turn organized mass demonstrations against the Soviet political system, helped decentralize the army, and popularize public gatherings. It was actually a former uh, female Soviet elite who acknowledged the Holodomor in 1932-33 for the very first time. Women organized the first parliamentary hearings in the Ukrainian parliament and increased the number and power of female deputies in the elections. But with independence came the obvious. Ukraine missed the 20th century in a very profound sense. And here I will let Solomea Pavlichko explain what she meant by that phrase. Quote, arguments, arguments which did not require theoretical proof a hundred years ago have to be elaborated once again. Moreover, those same arguments are pa uh, passionately rejected, not by uneducated people, but by educated individuals with high official status in society, end quote. In post-independent Ukraine, women were seen as either the Medahinya, or hearth goddess, and the mother of the nation, or as a modern businesswoman. The old Soviet patriarchal system was in full swing, and females were meant to be looked upon rather than taken seriously. The growth of populism after independence tried to fill this void of political maturity, but populism is not only patriarchal, but also mythopatriarchal, which looks upon the female in a very romantic way. Nationalism also became popular, but now nationalists view feminists as traitors because they challenge those gender roles that they find ideal. Nativity and stupidity went really hand in hand. But with the growth of independence came a deeper understanding of gender studies. And while some female organizations like Femin became internationally recognized mainly due to their stunts, others like the Women's Union reopened their doors and again began to work in establishing a female sphere and co co uh, coordination in Ukraine. And now comes another phenomena, phenomenon of feminism in Ukraine, this current war. Before February 2022, females were known for their sniping and medical prowess. There was even some speculation that forced mobilization of females into the Ukrainian armed forces would make it into a joke. But, well, with the full-scale war, women have shown they can handle not only war, but also organizing any and all help the Ukrainian armed forces might need. Women became the voice of Ukraine among the global parliaments and, and governments when male part parliamentarians couldn't exit the country. Let's just hope that now Ukrainian feminism and Ukrainian women can have their space among Ukrainian intellectual and pragmatic world. And now because Russia has is still attacking Ukraine, we need your help. Please donate to any humanitarian aid relief you can. I've also posted on my website some suggestions. Please take up the call and ask your local representative to help Ukraine in any way they can. Please remember to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Wander Edge Ukraine. Check out our website, wanderingtheedge.net, for source information, other interesting extras, 
And if you're listening to me on Apple Podcasts or Podcast Addict, uh, please leave, rate and review and leave a comment about anything, even any weird historical tidbit you have about your culture or peoples. And if you're listening on all the other streaming sites, thank you very much. And as always, happy wanderings, my friends, and Slava Ukraini, Roy and Slava.